Radio.com. So you want to be a comic? It's not as easy as we make it look. But that's because Mutiny Radio has eight hours a week of open mic stage time for all your comedy workout needs. Strain those improv muscles every Sunday from four to six at Getting Sketchy with David Stolowitz. Press out those new jokes every Monday, 6 to 8, on Joke Workshop with four-minute sets and four-minute critiques from everyone kept positive by host Pam Benjamin. Pump those dick jokes every Thursday, 7 to 9, with True Hustle Thursdays. Hashtag THC. That's hashtag THC. You want more open mics? Fridays, 6 to 8. Happy Hour with guest host and George D. Smith. Pew, pew, pew. Four open mics every week at Mutiny Radio, brother. work and take a seat at Asiento, a great place to meet friends, have delicious tapas and drinks, and relax with your neighbors. Located at Bryant 21st Street in the Deep Mission, Kitty Corner Block from Mutiny Radio. Come and get a drink during the comedy festival and enjoy happy hour pricing all night long with your festival ticket. A great neighborhood bar, come take a seat at Asiento. The Roxy Theater is San Francisco's favorite nonprofit art house cinema, bringing you the best, coolest, weirdest, most thought provoking movies of the past, present, and future. Hands down, there is no better way to get your film fix than at this legendary historic theater. Visit www.roxy.com. That's www.roxie.com today for showtimes and tickets. Everybody should listen to Mutiny Radio at mutinyradio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. All right, it's time.
say what she got to stare at now I'll tell you there's a ship do you like ads? the black I know. that's how we get ads it's a product that makes it so you never have to see another ad on each website ever again ever let the n-word slip during karaoke find yourself yelling at your kind
Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. This is the Labor and Love Show. And yes, I am he. I am the bee. <clears throat> Coming at you from 2781 21st Street in the Mission, the heart of San Francisco's beautiful Mission District. <clears throat> the Labor and Love Show, the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, a negotiating table that is where you work, you're probably on the menu. In fact, you're on the menu. They're talking about you. Third, never but never let anyone into that. Your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Okay, just putting together this week's show. We just had Pirate Jenny, which shows our real intentions, I'm afraid. For all the smooth talk and great music, we are a revolutionary show. We are talking about the overthrow of the capitalist system and replacing it with a more humane, human-oriented system, not based on profit, but on togetherness. Pirate Jenny. All the time she's working, she's thinking. She's storing up her knowledge. Stop that train with Bob Marley, and we're going to hear about an incident, an incident, a whole series of incidents where people stopped the train, where San Francisco actually stopped great strikes in U.S. history, part two. And before that, we had a mellow weekend song by Benny Goodman with his stomping at the Savoy. The Savoy Ballroom, of course, was the only ballroom, one of the few ballrooms in the country where white and black were welcomed and uh, could actually intermingle and dance, dance with one another. Okay, radio labor, right off the bat. Labor news and activity from all around the world. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on July 20th, 2018. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, a revitalized accord helps garment workers in Bangladesh. The World Bank adopts new rules for decent work and unions. The Labor Start report about union events around the world and singing, You Gotta Stand Up. This is Radio Labor. A newly revised accord on fire and building safety is coming into effect in Bangladesh. Seamarie Ainsborough reports. The global unions, which negotiated the Bangladesh Accord on Fire and Building Safety, have won two legal cases brought against companies which initially refused to resolve unsafe conditions 
in the country's garment industry. Final confirmation came on July 18th, when the Permanent Court of Arbitration announced that the cases were officially closed. The court had heard arguments brought forward by the global unions Uni and Industrial. Uni represents workers in the skills and services sectors. Industrial represents employees in a wide range of sectors, including garment production. The cases involved two multinational fashion brands who initially balked at fixing problems in their factories. They finally agreed to pay more than $2.3 million U.S. to address unsafe conditions in their establishments. The money will be distributed to the eligible factories by the accord. Christy Hoffman, the General Secretary of Uni Global Union, told the media that because of the legally binding nature of the accord, tens of thousands of potentially deadly hazards have been fixed and more than one million workers have been trained. Jenny Holdcroft, Assistant General Secretary of Industrial Global Union, said the accord has the power to fundamentally change the way garments and textiles are produced. While the legal cases were being heard, Radio Labour interviewed representatives of both global unions involved. Christina Hayegos Clausen is the Director of Industrial's Textile and Garment Department. She was asked what effect the accord has had in the country. Well, I think there's been multiple effects of the accord, and maybe I start first in Bangladesh. I think one of the key things has been the progress that the accord has made with the factory owners and workers on having an 84% remediation of safety issues. Um, Then I would say on another level, the accord has been quite successful as it's been the first agreement and a model of a legally binding global agreement between multinational companies and global unions, and that it's really shown this has been the most effective means to address workers' rights in the supply chain. So the work on the ground has been very tangible, but also in the global supply chain setting forth a new paradigm. If you look at the agreement, it really spells out how companies are responsible within the accord to uh, ensure that factory owners remediate identified hazards. So in this process, we have a dispute resolution settlement procedure that we've worked with and held companies accountable to their agreement. The ultimate adjudicator could be international arbitration. The accord was originally negotiated in 2013 after 1,200 mostly young women garment workers were killed when a building collapsed in the Reina Plaza near Dhaka. It was replaced by a new transition agreement in June 2018. In a Radio Labour interview, Ms. Hoffman from Uni was asked about the new agreement. We decided to negotiate the accord that will continue in 2018 after the original accord expired. And the critical premise of the accord is that the global brands that produce their garments in Bangladesh should be responsible to ensure that the factories are safe. So it's really about putting the responsibility on the brands to make sure the factories are operating in a safe manner. Ms. Hoffman was also asked if more unions have been certified in Bangladesh since the accord was originally signed in 2013. Well, actually, in the first couple of years after Rana Plaza, there was a growth in trade unions. And then after that, the government really took a turn against unions and started cracking down. And so, in fact, very few new unions have been registered over the past two years. And that's something that we're trying to address in the new accord, which also speaks to the importance of workers and unions in in managing their own safety and health and having safety and health committees. It speaks to the freedom of association in connection with uh, when connection with safe factories. The new transition agreement in the Bangladesh garment industry has been signed by more than 200 fashion brands. 
The World Bank has announced that all of its projects will have to comply with a new set of rules aimed at improving working conditions and supporting trade unions. The bank is a development agency which provides more than $30 billion for capital projects such as infrastructure and social services. It works mainly in developing countries. The new set of rules, called a safeguard in World Bank parlance, will have a significant effect for employers and workers. To find out more about the new rules, I talked to Leo Bonnock. Mr. Bonnock is a research officer with the Office of the International Trade Union Confederation and Global Unions in Washington. I asked him to describe the bank and the new labor rules. The World Bank is really kind of the foremost public multilateral institution dedicated to international development. And they currently describe their mission as ending poverty and promoting shared prosperity. In doing that, the World Bank provides over $30 billion in loans every year to fund development projects, giving them a very large footprint and a great deal of influence around the world. After many years of work by trade unions, the World Bank approved a labor safeguard or a labor standard in August 2016 that protects the rights of everyone who works on a project funded by the World Bank. The safeguards will go into effect later this year, meaning that the World Bank will join other development banks in taking proactive steps to protect project workers and respect labor rights more generally. First and foremost, this is necessary because the World Bank should ensure that the thousands of workers who execute their projects are treated fairly and provided with good jobs and decent, safe working conditions. If projects that are meant to improve lives and drive economic development are created by exploiting and abusing workers, then the mission of the World Bank is undermined from the start. Later this year in October, the annual meetings of the World Bank will be taking place in Bali in Indonesia. In 2004, a trade union survey found that a bank-funded infrastructure project in Bali included children working in hazardous conditions, pay discrimination based on gender, failure to make social security payments, and two workers who were killed on the job. So as the World Bank prepares to walk on the national the international stage in Bali, this sort of thing will be reduced by the labor safeguard and give workers a tool to fight back against rights violations. And I think finally it's necessary because we as, as a trade union movement are working to push the bank to support a future that is defined by development and by decent work. What sectors are most likely to be affected by these new rules, the safeguard as they're called? The biggest and most visible area where the World Bank is involved is in infrastructure, both development and upgrades to existing assets. So these are things like roads, water projects, facilities to produce or transmit electricity. That's the largest source of um, their funding, both because these are a priority and because they're quite expensive. But the World Bank also provides loans to governments for a wide range of projects, for example, expanding healthcare services, expanding public transportation, reforming government agencies, or promoting economic diversification, just to name a few areas. And this new labor safeguard is going to, going to apply to all workers employed on those projects, regardless of whether they work for the government borrower, most of the borrowers from the World Bank are governments, or for a private contractor. In many cases, governments borrowing from the World Bank will contract private companies to carry out key activities and those private companies will be the largest employer on a bank-funded project. What will the safeguard do for workers employed on World Bank projects? This new labor safeguard will require occupational health and safety measures. It prohibits discrimination in hiring. It prohibits harassment on the job. 
It ensures that workers are provided with clear information about the terms of their employment, and it also protects the right to form a trade union, forbids forced and child labor, and takes particular steps to protect migrant workers, women, and other groups that are often targeted by discrimination and abuse in the workplace. It also requires a grievance process if a trade union has not already negotiated one, and requires borrowers to monitor their supply chains for forced or child labor and major occupational health and safety risks. So this safeguard is a quite comprehensive document that is a binding requirement for taking a loan from the bank and sets out a number of steps that have to be taken by that borrower. Will the new safeguard make a difference for workers employed in World Bank funded projects? Absolutely. This standard will make a difference for a large number of workers by compelling, requiring governments who lend money from the World Bank to take steps to protect project workers. The safeguard has the potential to set an example of how human and trade union rights can be fully respected in places where there are often violations. And in a time when trade unions are facing increasing repression, this could be an important tool for workers to organize unions, improve their working conditions, and ensure that economic growth includes quality jobs. Here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Store correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a small sample of the average of 190 news stories added to our site each day last week. Our top stories section included links to coverage of the global campaigns to organize support for Turkish and Indian workers under attack by their employers, the reaction of American unions to a recent devastating court decision, and the strike against Amazon in Spain, Poland, and Germany that was accompanied by a boycott call. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Venezuelan nurses refused non-emergency work for a few hours in an effort to gain a wage increase. Australian public transport drivers refused to accept fares instead of stopping work as they ramped up their wage dispute, while bus drivers in India did the same in an effort to gain regular status for contract workers. American nurses were on picket lines in an effort to force their employer to put more of its profits into patient care. Retail workers in Scotland spontaneously struck when they discovered uh, cameras in a room used by staff to change into their uniforms, as did rail staff in England after complaints about huge crowds of irate passengers were ignored by management. South African footwear workers continued their walkout over their union's demand for a living wage, as post office workers in that country ended a two-week wage strike with a victory. Polytechnic workers in Nigeria began an indefinite strike over unpaid wages. Media workers at the public broadcaster joined the general strike in Guinea-Bissau against government austerity measures. Deep into a wage dispute were South Africa's metal workers. And also this week, outsourced electricity workers in India began an indefinite strike in an effort to have themselves deemed government employees. Our top working women's stories included coverage of the disproportionate negative effects the Trump attack on unions are having on women workers in the United States, calls for a Me Too movement in the global fashion industry, and how a rise in unemployment affects women first and harder in Italy. The Health and Safety Newswire rerun in cooperation with Hazards magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the deaths of four workers that finally forced the permanent closure of a mine in Georgia, a new health and safety strategy developed by Australian unions, 
and more evidence of systemic physical and sexual harassment up and down the global garment industry's supply chain. Currently, Labor Start is running seven online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Union Nation with You've Gotta Stand Up. Taking all that you're gonna take and the bosses keep you down. No, you're worth more than you make, but there's no more jobs in town. Want a union, but there's risks where the others stand as strong. No, the bosses shake their fists and they tell you that you're wrong. You gotta stand up. You gotta stand up. You gotta stand up for your rights. Well, you gotta sign this card before anything gets done. The fight is long and it will be hard, but the race is worth the run. Well, back those bosses to the wall till there's no place left to hide. You gotta stand up. You gotta stand up. You gotta stand up for your rights. And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can find more labor news on our website at www.radiolabor.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Labor. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Radio Labor. With uh, news from all around the world, everywhere you look, labor is on the march. Okay, we're not going to get the news told from the point of view of working people. But all around the world, working people are agitating and winning. This show, as always, is dedicated to those workers all around the world. Every 15 seconds... Someone dies from a work-related injury or condition. In the United States, between 250 and 350 people die every day from work-related conditions or accidents. This show is dedicated to you. Okay, a little news now about Mark Janus, who was the big winner in the anti-union lawsuit that the Supreme Court passed at uh, 5 to 4. Janus has quit his job. He was a a child care worker. And uh, less than a month after, this is the Chicago Chicago Sun-Times. Less than a month after he won a Supreme Court case to preserve his First Amendment rights to state worker not to pay union fees, 
Mark Janis has announced he's quitting his job for a position with a conservative think tank that helped bankroll his case. Now, now I wonder if Mr. Janice is going to turn down the defined benefit pension that collective bargaining won for him. Or perhaps he could do this. He could uh, cut back to when he started working and figure out what his pension would have been at that time before uh, collective bargaining. Janice, 65, had worked as a $71,000 per year child support specialist at the Illinois Department of Health Care and Family Services. As a senior fellow, Janice will serve as spokesman and workers' rights advocate, according to the think tank, which didn't disclose his salary. We are thrilled that Mark has decided to bring his invaluable insight to our team after a long, hard fight at the Supreme Court, Tillman said in a statement. He is articulate, courageous, and committed to the cause of empowering workers. Hello. So, Mr. Janus, or this implies that unions are not there to empower workers, but Mr. Janus is. How interesting. He will be touring the country to make sure workers understand their rights and to share with workers and other people interested in his Supreme Court case what the Janus win means. The Janus win means you can get something for nothing. You can consciously decide not to pay anything, not to put in any time, but still get the benefits. Now, how does how much does legal consultation and representation cost? Does Mr. Janice know? Has he thought about that? Anyway, we'll see. We'll see what happens when Mr. Janice comes. When Mr. Janice comes out into the Bay Area. Okay, let's play some music. <clears throat> Get the bad, bad taste out of our mouths, huh? We had a little Nina Simone this morning. Here's her famous song, reading a lot about the civil rights movement lately. Nina Simone. Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi God damn Alabama's got me so upset Lurleen Wallace has made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi God damn Can't you see it? It's all in the air I can't stand the pressure much longer Somebody say a prayer Alabama has got me so upset And Memphis has made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi God damn 
hound dogs on my trail Little school children sitting in jail Black cat crossed my path I think every day's gonna be my last Lord have mercy on this land of mine We all gonna get it in due time Cause I don't belong here, I don't belong there I've even stopped believing in prayer Don't tell me, I'll tell you Me and my people just about do I've been there so I know You keep on saying go slow Well that's just the trouble Washing the windows, picking the cotton, nothing but rotten, too damn lazy, thinking's crazy. Try to do my very best Stand up, be counted with all the rest Cause everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Now you heard him He's one of you If you have been moved at all And you know my songs at all For God's sakes, join me Don't sit back there the time is too late now. Good God. You know, the king is dead. The king of love is dead. I ain't about to be non-violent, honey. Oh, oh. oh no. Picket lines. Boycotts. They try to say it's a communist plot, but all I want is equality for my sister, my brother, my people, and me. And I loved him because he believed it. He lived by it. But you lied to me all the years You told me to wash and clean my ears And talk real fine just like a lady And you stopped calling my mama and Sadie Hear me now But my country is full of lies we all gonna die and die like flies. But I don't trust nobody anymore. Keep on saying go slow. That's just the trouble. No. Desegregation. No. Mass participation. No. Unification. No. Do things gradually. No.
to live next to me Just give me my equality Cause everybody knows about Mississippi Everybody knows about Alabama Everybody knows about Mississippi God damn That's it! All right, that's second Nina Simone for the day. Love to play Nina Simone. Nina Simone is actually living what she's talking about. Prophets of rage. Time to get mad.
As I was saying, I'm Tom Morello, and I'm a union man. I'm a proud member of Los Angeles Local 47 Musicians Union and a proud card-carrying member of the industrial workers of the world. And it's my honor to stand shoulder to shoulder with you today as we show the country and we show the world that we are not going to take this bullshit they're trying to force down our throats in the Midwest, and that's not coming here. I went to Madison about a week after the demonstration started, and the day I was there, there were more people on the streets of Madison, Wisconsin, than there were in Cairo, Egypt. And I, the people of Madison gave me a message to tell you that they are not going to give up, they are not going to give in, they are going to get Governor Walk and those Republican senators out of a job, and they are going to hold on to their rights. gave them a message from the people of Los Angeles and that is that we are going to stand with them and not only are we going to fight for their rights but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state in our homes and in our community because the future of labor's rights in the United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts it's not going to be decided in Congress it's not going to be decided on talk radio and as sure as shit is not going to be decided on Fox News of working people's rights in this country is going to be decided on the streets of Wisconsin, on the streets of Indiana, on the streets of Ohio, on the streets of Florida, and on the streets of Los Angeles, California. Which leads to the first song in my program today. Brothers and sisters, this is a fighting song. This first song I'm going to play for you a freedom song, the jam that I'm about to drop on your collective ass, Los Angeles, is a union song for the fight auto workers who are twisted, tricked, and robbed, for the peasant in Guatemala in a sweatshop got your job, and she can't feed her family on the pennies that she makes, meanwhile the crime rate's rising up and down the Great Lakes, stay Like vegetables left in the field, signatures smell rotten on the contracts and the deeds. Push the race down to the bottom. They load the rubber bullets. They fire another round. I'm heading to the tear gas. Dig in, man. Hold your ground. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers, our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women standing up and standing strong. It's appropriate to cheer loudly now, people. Si nos queremos juntos, vamos a ganar. See, y'all hit them where it hurts and bite the hand that feeds. You might get one to three or probation and a fine. Well, I know where I'm going to be. I'm going to be right on that front line. Gojo Hill and Cesar Chavez fought in their own time. For our brothers, our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women standing up and standing strong.
Stop clapping. Back to the serious shit. <laughs> now dirty scabs across the line, while others stand aside and look. But ain't nobody never got nothing that didn't raise their voice and push. Like the steelwork in Ohio, the miner in West Virginia, the teacher in Wisconsin, janitor in Mississippi, from the sweatshops of L.A. to the fields of Mission Flats, there's a thundercloud exploding, and I'm free at last! Joe Hill and Jesus shot this, fought in their own time, like our brothers, our sisters, up and down that picket line, like the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long, like the union men and women standing up standing strong, like the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long, like the union men and women standing up and standing strong. Tom Morello there with uh, his classic Union song. That was recorded at a rally for um, workers in Los Angeles, downtown L.A. Union song. You don't get anything unless you go out and go for it. Tom Morello. And before that, we had another one of Tom Morello's projects. This is the group Prophets of Rage with uh, Chuck D and several really well-known uh, rappers. They played the uh, Republican convention in 2016 for about a week. All right. Let's listen to our friend uh, Decoded, Francesca Ramsey. And I wanted to play Why is Legal Immigration to the U.S. Almost Impossible? Let's see what Francesca has to say. A foreigner moves to America, no wait, he applies for a green card to move to America, and then that takes two or four years, so we've got some time before I get to the punchline. The immigration debate isn't exactly a new conversation in America, but lately that debate has gotten even more heated, what with talk of travel bans and multi-billion dollar border walls. Lots of people have their own ideas about the solution to the so-called illegal immigrant problem, but few realize or care how the immigration process in America actually works. Spoiler alert, it doesn't work. For those who aren't in the know, why can't they just get in line to come here legally? Seems like a pretty reasonable question. But this isn't the old timey days when 98% of people who showed up to Ellis Island were let into the country. Today, America's immigration process is super long and super expensive. Follow me, if you will, through the hellish landscape that is green card land. It's like Candyland, only way more depressing. So you want to live and work in America. There are several ways to achieve this, and none of them are easy or necessarily guaranteed to make you a citizen. First, you've got to figure out what kind of tedious application journey you're about to embark on. Let's talk about a few. 
If you're from a country with a low immigration rate, you could apply for the green card lottery, in which over 11 million people worldwide each year apply for only 50,000 available visas. Gotta love those less than 0.5% odds. But for argument's sake, let's say you apply for the lottery and don't win. You could file an employment-based application. All you need is an eligible employer in the United States to sponsor you and pay for the application process and prove you're not taking away a valuable job from a U.S. citizen. Don't worry, this will only take like a year to get approved by the Labor Department if you have a master's or PhD, and only two to five years if you don't. Plus, you have to be outside the U.S. if you don't have lawful status. And on top of that, you haven't even applied for the actual visa yet. Isn't waiting for years on slim hopes the best? But if you're really special, you can apply for a shiny EB-1 visa. That's for aliens of extraordinary ability. Basically, anyone who's managed to excel in the arts, business, academia, or athletics, and fits at least three of 10 special, special people requirements. Or they've made a cool one-time achievement like winning a Pulitzer, an Oscar, or an Olympic medal. What, you don't have a Pulitzer? Let's say maybe the employer thing didn't work and your Pulitzer was lost in the mail. Well, you could have a family member petition for you, if they're already living in the United States legally. If you're flying solo, your last option is to find a spouse. Just be prepared to prove it's real. Contrary to every 90s sitcom sham green card marriage plot, the whole process doesn't take place in 30 hilarious minutes, but over the course of several months to a year. And you may even have to prove it again two years later if you haven't been married that long. But if you don't have an American Bay, well, bye. Did I mention the cost of all of this? Because no matter what application you file, it's going to be a pretty penny. A standard green card application costs $1,760, and a lawyer to walk you through the filing process can run you anywhere from $500 to $10,000, depending on how complicated your case is going to be. Plus, there are literally hundreds of different forms that you may have to file, and all of them will cost something. You'll be shelling out money on fees to the government, lawyers, passport photos, biometrics, mailing cost and so on, all while trying to, you know, live your life. All right, so let's say you've managed to raise the money to pay all the fees and maybe get a decent lawyer. You've gathered all the necessary documents and filled out your applications to the best of your ability. Good job on answering no to are you a terrorist? You win, right? You've reached Green Card Castle. <laughs> no. The Department of Homeland Security, which now manages immigration, is notorious for its backlogged, outdated system. An application can get rejected for all kinds of reasons. Maybe your passport photos aren't the right size, or you forgot to check a box on page 19. And even if your application is perfect, you can wait up to four years for a response, and in some cases, even 10. Plus, if you're rejected after all this, you could face deportation or go back to start in this long and costly green card land adventure. Look, America is a country of immigrants, except Native Americans, of course, and African Americans who were, you know, brought here against their will. Obviously, undocumented immigration is a complex issue, which means there's no easy solution. But maybe before building a wall or issuing highly specific travel bans, we should focus on building a better system for welcoming new folks in. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time right here on Decoded. Francesca Ramsey's take on why people try to get into this country illegally. <laughs>
or something like that. No, the point is how complex it is. Because you hear people say, you hear white people say, or uh, rightist people say, why don't they just go through the legal channels? Well, the legal channels are bizarre, to say the least. They're expensive. You have to put your whole life on hold. Okay. Do you speak for your entire race? One more from Francesca Ramsey. Do you like ads? I don't. That's why we created Ad Remover. Ads. It's a product that makes it so you never have to see another ad. I'm sorry, pardon me. No, Andy, we're going to go get some lunch. Where's the best place to find... Congratulations, Andy. You've just been made a race ambassador. So I told my boss, no, I don't own a kimono. And the next thing I know, HR told me I have to come to this class. Welcome. If you're attending this seminar, you've probably found you're the only person of your background at your office, school, or neighborhood. Here at the Race Ambassador Training Center, we'll help you navigate this brand new, awesome responsibility. Yes, Latino Ambassador. Yeah, I, I don't want to do this. I don't even know why I'm here. Yeah, seriously, why are we... Oh, it's not optional. Think of it like a public service, like jury duty. If jury duty was every day for the rest of your life. Okay, well, can I at least represent Puerto Rico? No. Race ambassadors are expected to speak multiple languages of their own. And with a little bit of practice, you guys can learn a new one, the language of non-ambassadors. For example, this common phrase. Where are you from? Translates to... Why are you brown? Good! Next, we'll learn how to say bad words in all the languages that people expect you to speak. Okay, let's do a little role play. Action! Okay, Mike, hi. I, your coworker, uh, am so excited to talk with you about the latest Empire slash Blackish slash Luke Cage slash Real Housewives of Atlanta and or regular Atlanta. Oh, sorry, I don't really watch TV. Oh, Mike, what a buzzkill! Television provides so many people access to what they can only assume is your unique lived experience. I've watched The Wire. I, I didn't watch The Wire. What do I do when people ask me to speak Hindu? Ooh, you should give it your best shot. By spending your free time doing homework, consuming hours worth of entertainment, you'll never be caught passively betraying your race again. Yo, a uh, quick comment. Yeah? Islam's not a race. <laughs> I don't know that. Sorry, you have me listening to a bunch of K-pop, I think, but I'm not Korean. Oh my God, it's like you're not even listening. You are representing millions of people. Lily's representing billions, okay? This is serious stuff, act like it. I feel like I've been hearing a lot of, why do people keep asking me about country X when I'm from country Z? When instead, you could be using those as opportunities for great teachable moments. Sorry, you want us to take the time to tutor people in geography? But I've already got so much K-pop on my plate. You guys, 
It's not that hard. Like if someone asked Mike to tell them about Africa. I don't know nothing about Africa. See, neither do they. You're already finding common ground and great use of your native tongue. Okay, why should we have to do that? Like, ever? I'll give you guys an example. Priya, huh? what part of India are you from? Oh, here, I'll show you. Okay, so I'm from this part. Uh, oh, okay, great teachable moment, officially unteached. You know what? This whole thing is really not fair. Yeah, it's not fair to expect someone to have all the answers or speak for their entire race. Yeah, we're all unique individuals. Race ambassadors are bullshit. Uh, hey, is, is this the race ambassador meeting? Uh, what's going on? Oh, uh, I, I'm moving to Liberia to teach third world countries how to body surf. I'm gonna be the only white dude there. It's gonna be pretty sick. So wait, you're choosing to be a race ambassador? Well, yeah. Is that the sash? Do I get one of those? You sure do. This is awesome. Oh, I look so great. I'm glad someone's taking it seriously. Sweet. Yeah, I think I know a lot about like white history and culture and stuff though, so I don't think I'll get too stumped over there. Wait, I have a question. Why do white people always ask me if I think in Spanish? Oh, I mean, we all think different ways, you know? And why do white people always think that I know black people that they know? Well, it's a small world. Okay, why do white people always ask me if my uncle's a terrorist? I mean, anything's possible. Why do white people like camping? Uh, not, not all white people like camping, okay? I don't like camping. Do you know Adam Sandler? Could you introduce me? No, I don't know Adam Sandler. How come white people love recasting Asian roles with Matt Damon? I mean, I don't know. That's a question for Hollywood. Why can't white people handle spice? I feel like you're putting all of us in a box. How come white people love going on Tough Mudders with their coworkers? I don't represent my entire race! Why won't you just let us have this? This is bullshit. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay, I get it. That was our second part two of Decoded this week. <clears throat> our Francesca Ramsey sets up a class for cultural ambassadors. In other words, if you're the only representative of a group you keep getting asked questions by <clears throat> white people especially about your group because you're supposed to represent you're supposed to represent for your group so it's crazy very well done by Francesca Ramsey so today we celebrate this whole month we celebrate one of the great upheavals of American history. Last week we covered the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. This week it's the 1934 West Coast Longshore Strike right here in San Francisco. Let's get on without further ado. 1934. Okay, so we're talking about uh, a trade, longshoring, that's um, invaluable. You have to have people who will, in those days especially, who would take cargo off ships and distribute it to wherever it was going. You needed people, you know, their brawn and their awareness and their 
courage. It was not not a safe job. Okay, the a lot of times the equipment that was used was ancient. Um, and and there was the the shape up system. You would go to work by the you would show up for work by the uh, docks, and the uh, foreman would go walk up and down the rows and point at people and pick them to work that day. So. When one side is totally, when, when the employer side is totally dominant, what happens is you get injustice built into the system. Now there are stories of crews of people having to go and paint, paint the foreman's house in return for working. One situation, a man had to allow his a lot the foreman to sleep with his wife more than one occasion that kind of thing was happening humiliation so this west coast strike was to address that and it featured the the uh, emergence of uh, harry bridges and the group around him 1934 West Coast. This is Washelli Cemetery in Seattle. Here are buried Harry Reagan and Joe Goldsberry, killed by scabs in the 1916 strike. In Tacoma, you'll find the grave of the martyred Scotty Laidlaw. For those who survived the strike, the employers established the Fink Hall and the Shape Up, except in Tacoma, where the men kept their own hiring hall. The West Coast longshoremen learned from the 1916 strike that they had to have port-to-port -port cooperation and strong ties with the Marine Unions and the Teamsters. For 18 years, they worked at it, and in 1934, they were ready. This is the story of the 1934 strike. Tiny, when did the 34 strike start? Well, the actual strike was called for the morning of the 9th of May, 1934. And at that time, all the seafaring groups and ourselves, the Longshoremen, had agreed on the date and the time. And uh, on, uh, the strike started at midnight. Pickets were placed. This, the, the coast was in a, in a very quandary in regard to uh, the strike. San Pedro hadn't voted as yet to go on strike up by that 8th of May. Seattle hadn't voted to go on strike by the 8th of May. And they made up their mind on midnight. We were, we were unified for the morning of the strike. This is the Joint Northwest Strike Committee. 66 men elected to serve as a general strategy board for the 1934 strike. They represented the locals from Anacortes, Astoria, Bellingham, Everett, Grays Harbor, Longview, Raymond, Port Angeles, Port Townsend, Portland, Seattle, and Tacoma. Associated with them in the strike 
where the Marine Cooks and Stewards Union, the Marine Firemen, the Masters, Mates, Pilots, and the Sailors Union. In the center of the picture is Ernie Tanner, a leader in the Tacoma local since 1918. Among the 1916 veterans serving on the Joint Northwest Strike Committee were Con Nagsted from Portland, Art Wilbert, George Clark, Art Whitehead, William Steamboat Bow from Seattle, and Walt Freer and Ed Harris from Tacoma. Walt Freer was elected chairman of the Joint Northwest Strike Committee, and Ed Harris became the secretary. William Patty Morris and John Bjorklund represented Pacific Northwest on strike negotiations in San Francisco. Both were veterans of the 1916 strike. The Joint Northwest Strike Committee had to figure out how to counteract employer strike strategy. The employers had closed down all but Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Los Angeles docks. They hired scabs and guards and demanded police protection. Cooperation existed between the Joint Northwest Strike Committee and the San Francisco Joint Marine Strike Committee. Delegates were exchanged and close contact was kept throughout the strike. There was close port-to-port -port cooperation. No local tried to settle on the side. They all stood together. Nor would they let ILA President Joseph Ryan make a deal. The rank and file would settle for nothing less than control of the hiring hall. It was the central issue of the strike. It would be a fight to the finish. The men had learned the lessons of the 1916 strike well. This photo commemorates the first significant event of the 1934 strike. It was Gauntlet Day. On May 12, 1934, 2,000 longshoremen from Seattle, Tacoma, Aberdeen, and Everett hit the Seattle docks to drive out the scabs. Buck Wiley said it best. We went to Alaska Steam at Pier 1, and then to Pier 2. We got a bunch of them out there. Then we went down to the old Nelson dock where young boys were working. They were discharging oranges, and we got them out. From there, we went down to American Hawaiian at Stacy and Lander. The high point was at Pier 2, when 75 scabs filed through a crowd of strikers. Last to come out was the foreman, Iodine Herodine. The clearing of the scabs on May 12th marked the greatest victory for longshoremen since the formation of the Seattle and Tacoma Stevedore Unions in 1886. After the scab clearing episode, the mayors of Tacoma, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Los Angeles tried to open the waterfronts with police, all at the same time. In Tacoma on June 20th, 50 guards and scabs bust to the waterfront, but 400 longshoremen were there to meet them. After a short parley, the scabs and guards departed. In Seattle, at Smith Cove, now Pier 91, employers brought scabs and guards by boat to the warehouses. The strikers picketed on Magnolia Bridge and the railroad tracks. They wouldn't let trucks, cars, or railroad engines get to the docks. To stop the train, 200 pickets surrounded the engine. A half dozen strikers boarded the engine to talk to the crew. The strikers persuaded the trainmen not to enter the pier area. The train crew reported to supervisors that the tracks were unsafe. It was the first time railroad engineers had supported a waterfront strike in the history of Puget Sound area. 
One of those who boarded the train was Wayne Moisio. Police labeled him the train stopper. The employers hired scabs in downtown Seattle. There were frequent street battles between strikers, scabs, and police. This newsreel footage shows the situation. Smith Cove, the horse mounties made a determined effort to get rid of the strikers once and for all. After the tear gas rained down from the bridge, police arrested 44 strikers. It took four police to arrest one longshoreman in his white hat. In 1988, 54 years later, John Mahoney, seaman, and eight longshoremen gathered at Smith Cove to relive the tear gas attack. This is Shelby Daffron, a Seattle longshoreman, delegate to the Joint Northwest Strike Committee. He led strikers to Point Wells. Well, they were going out there to to get in, and uh, this guard shot him. The guy took a shot, just come out of the bushes with a shot. Daffron is buried in the family plot in Lakeview Cemetery. He was one of seven strikers who lost their lives in the 1934 strike. This plaque, created by Ron Gustin, symbolizes the 1934 strike. The men gained their own hiring hall. It took seven lives to do it and July 5th is forever remembered as an honored day. This is the legacy of the 1934 strike. It gave hope to other unions. The 1935 struggle of timber workers in Tacoma was fought at 11th and A Street. Longshoremen were right there beside the... These were days when history changed its course. The sit-down strikes began on December 30th. They began with the attempt of GM to move the dies at Fisher Number 1 to Grand Rapids and elsewhere. A documentary no about the same strike from 1936. Yes, 
long a sit-down strike in Flint. It was hard. Great hard strikes work. of U.S. history. Now you didn't get no overtime. If you worked it over, it was just your straight regular time. Of course, the women weren't allowed to work any overtime, but the men, they could work overtime, but wouldn't get no extra pay for it. It was hot in the summer, cold in the winter. Uh, you couldn't always uh, take time off if you need to go to the bathroom. And I remember in 1936, uh, before the strike, it was very, very hot. And down in uh, the Chevrolet, there were people who were dropping over because of the heat. And the other workers were told, just step over them until we can get them out of the way. They didn't, turn, they didn't slow down the line. They didn't stop it. And they just dragged people away. It was terrible. And I think that's one thing that really helped bring on the strike. On January the 4th, the union submitted a complete list of grievances. We asked for a national General Motors agreement, for day rates and the abolition of the hated piecework system, for seniority, for recognition of the union, for control of speed up, for grievance procedures, for the reinstatement of all the men who had been fired for union activity and for a 30-hour week. GM said no to everything. Widely separated workers, workers who didn't know each other, workers who didn't know each other's names, men who had been divided, weak and oppressed, came together in union and in solidarity. The union spokesman was John L. Lewis. Reporters from all over the world converged on Flint. Flint, the General Motors factories where the workers were sitting in, had become a stage which the workers of the world, wherever they were, were watching intently. Extra editions of papers came out on Flint developments in Paris, in Rome, in London, Calcutta, Buenos Aires. Well, the men stayed, but the women had to go out. We couldn't stay. I remember my dad calling home a few weeks into the strike and saying to my mother, Ida, we're having trouble keeping some of these young fellows in, in here. Uh, they're threatening, uh, their wives are threatening to divorce them or they want them home and the guys want to get home naturally. And uh, she said, Jay Green, if you come out, I will divorce you. I know there's one guy that he had five kids and he'd, he gets so nervous he'd pass out because he had five kids and he didn't know he's going to get a job or not, get a job back. It was a bitter winter in January. Flint was the Valley Forge of the people who work in the plants. These were times when the summer soldiers fell away and the winter soldiers stood up in a terrible trial. Armchair generals and colonels were demanding that the National Guardsmen go into those plants and shoot the sit-downers out. But for once, the National Guard truly maintained law and order. The strikers were disciplined, but the Flint City government was the General Motors government after all, and General Motors insisted so the police tried to evict the sit-downers. This is not vandalism you see there. They are breaking these windows to let the air in and to let the tear gas out. sit-down strike in tear gas and blood as if it were a kind of 13th century peasants revolt failed. There were casualties. 
We didn't know what was going to happen. We, and then, of course, when the National Guard was called out, we were scared to death that they were going to maybe shoot down the workers, the, the strikers. But it didn't. We had a good governor, and uh, he sent the National Guard in to protect them. We will work our way out of this strike peacefully and without injustice to anyone. And I am confident that after it's all over with, there will be a better understanding between employer and employee. And better still, I hope that conditions will be improved under which men and women labor and live. The sit-down strikes reached their climax at the beginning of February. Governor Murphy had been in office just one month. General Motors had tried everything, spies and intimidation. GM had taken his case to court before a judge who was a GM stockholder. The corporation had applied pressure on Governor Murphy. It had tried evicting the strikers by force. But not for a moment did the or the discipline of the strikers waver. Their wives and their children came to the factory windows. The troops, there to maintain order, not to shoot strikers, bivouacked in the streets. The strike came to an end on February the 11th, 1937. Governor Murphy announced the settlement terms. For a period of six months, General Motors would not, without the governor's permission, deal with any employee spokesman except the UAW and the 17 plants that had been struck. In the other plants, the union would be dealt with as representatives for its own members. No discrimination against union people. All strikers would be rehired. Union members could talk about the union during lunch and rest periods. All court proceedings against the union and its members to end. The company would begin to negotiate with the union in good faith. It was a magnificent and historic victory. Well, it made a company give us a better feeling. <laughs> and for, for black people, uh, we got jobs that we didn't get before because most of the time we were just sweeping the floor. But after that, we all went on machines and everything. People need a union. That's the main thing, because you can't survive too long without a union and, and really live a decent life. Kids just don't have any idea what it was like. But I'm afraid someday they're going to find out. The people all have a union to hang on to it because you can't be without one. If you don't, you get somebody there <laughs> whipping you, <laughs> make you work, you know, and you know, no representation of how it is. No representation, they, they take advantage of you. General Motors workers in Flint get the news of the settlement and the celebration is spontaneous. The flag tells you how the people feel. They have just won back one of their constitutional rights. Home is the sit-down. After the long, patient struggle in the factory, the men go home. What these people are celebrating deep into the night is the end of an impossible and unbearable subjection. Unions have brought wage earners so much security and freedom and dignity that it isn't easy even to recall the terrible oppression that came to an end with the winning of the sit-down strike. Well, it made a middle class. We could have decent food. We could live in a decent place. Uh, we could wear decent clothes. We could relax, which we just couldn't before. We were always on edge, it seemed, that uh, if you're hungry sometimes, that's not good. And I remember being hungry sometimes. People were able to buy homes, uh, hold their heads high, have 
self-respect, which we didn't always have before. So that was a couple from our uh, series, Great Strikes of American History. That was the Flint sit-down, uh, the first phase, <clears throat> which developed uh, at General Motors and the tactic of sitting down, taking over your workplace, something that had been prophesized by... <clears throat> Lucy Parsons, one of the great anarchist labor speakers and leaders of her time. So, the sit-down strikes. Before that, we had a, a nice documentary about the 1934 strike in Seattle. In Seattle, we hear a lot about... Uh, Harry Bridges. Wait a minute. Let's see here. We don't want that. Um, we hear a lot about Harry Bridges. Let's see what happened in labor history. July 6th. We spoke a little about this, about the great homestead strike. <clears throat> An all-day battle between locked-out homestead steel workers and 300 Pinkerton detectives hired by Andrew Carnegie started at 4 a.m. Pinkertons were trying to import and protect scabs brought in to replace the striking workers. Violence escalated when striking steel workers armed with guns and a homemade cannon attacked the barges that brought in the Pinkerton detectives. Pitched battles now, y'all. Pitched battles. Labor and capital. <sighs> Striking construction workers in Duluth, Minnesota, city where my dad is from, was from. The workers, mostly immigrants, went on strike when contractors reneged on an agreement to pay them one dollar and seventy-five cents a day. Mayor John Sutphin ordered police to keep strikers away from scabs, leading to fighting between strikers and police. It was an hour-long gunfight at the corner of 20th Avenue West and Michigan Street that killed two strikers and one bystander and wounded an estimated 30 strikers. Police eventually suppressed the strike through violence. Working class history. On this day, 21 July 1919, workers in Arequipa, Peru, formed a committee to fight against the rapidly rising cost of living. And their demands were not met they launched a massive general strike in early October involving shoemakers, mechanics, and textile transport workers. After eight days, workers in the British-owned Peruvian Corporation won pay increases. 
on this day, 21 July 1945, members of the Irish Women Workers Union staged a laundry strike, demanding a second week of paid holiday, affecting many of Dublin's hotels. Hotel laundry workers were exempt from the strike action. The strike lasted 14 weeks and ended in victory for the women, and the following year the government conceded to giving two weeks paid holiday to all workers. Photo here on the uh, Working Class Histories website. This iconic photograph of 17-year-old Marina Hinesta was taken in revolutionary Barcelona taken by Juan Guzman atop the Hotel Colón. Marina survived the war and lived until 2014. Working class history. On this day, 21 July 1972, five shop stewards were arrested and jailed by the National Industrial Relations Court for refusing to obey a court order to stop picketing a container depot in East London. Their arrest and imprisonment led to the Trades Union Congress calling a general strike. They were released five days later after the mass protest and wildcat strikes. On this day, 20 July 1979, North American political prisoner Leonard Peltier escaped from Lompoc Federal Penit Penitentiary, California. This is the homepage of the campaign to free Leonard Peltier after his escape. Peltier cases particularly profound because he's accused, whoever the, the killers are accused of killing two FBI men, FBI men who drove on to their reservation where there was a lot of tension already and sat there in their cars and the, the gunfight started. And uh, these two guys were killed almost 100 years to the day after the, the Custer fight. The whole case against Peltier was established illegally and with the goal of getting an Indian. Peltier will probably never be released because the FBI is against him. This day, 1972, Salvador, Carmen, Medina, Muba de Botana, Argentine Jewish novelist, playwright, anarchist, and feminist, died in Buenos Aires, age 78. These are our heroes. Francisco Villa, this day, July 20th, 1923, Mexican Revolution guerrilla. Guerrilla leader, 
was ambushed and killed in Parral, Mexico. He was 45. Francisco Villa. Finally, uh, Franz Fanon, one of the founders of um, leftist thought, a psychiatrist who worked in uh, Algiers and who wrote about the relation between the colonizer and the colonized. Okay, we could go on and on. The point is, everywhere, in every clime, in every country, people are struggling to make their lives and jobs better. They always have been and they always will be. Okay, must get depressed. It's easy to get depressed at times like this. Now what have we got? I want to play a little bit of uh, Howard Zinn. Zinn is talking about stories Hollywood never tells. Okay, we won't hear about our working class history from Hollywood. Hi, good morning. It's wonderful to see you all here. And I'd like to mention also that KUNM Albuquerque is here, as well as KRZA and Alamosa Taos, two community-based radio stations. <laughs> where, unlike many of their brethren on the East Coast, particularly in the Boston-Miami corridor, you can hear the likes of Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky and Barbara Ehrenreich and other radical voices that are pretty much um, not permitted to uh, have access to what is ostensibly our public uh, airwaves. Um, I want to do something um, a little different uh, in terms of uh, introducing Howard Zinn. Uh, you can find out all of the graphical information, um, date of birth, where he went. To school and you know his experience in World War II in our book and in other books as well. So let me just start then with a Sufi teaching story. Um, the Sufism is the um, esoteric inner dimension of um, Islam, uh, a religion of course much maligned and distorted today. is um, virtually an official enemy. And uh, the great Sufi uh, teacher and poet um, wrote in Persian in the 13th century is Molana Jalaluddin Rumi, or just known as Rumi. And one of his uh, wonderful stories is called uh, The Elephant in the Dark. And let me see if I can make this connection with this presentation. 
the Elephant in the Dark is about um, a group of people who are assembled and are blindfolded. And they are asked to touch different parts of the elephant and to identify um, what they perceive. So uh, one person steps forward and grabs the tail and says, oh, it's a rope. Another person uh, comes forward and uh, touches the ear and says it's a fan. Uh, a third comes forward and, and touches the leg and says it's a pillar. And in each way, the, um, the perceptors only perceive part of the whole. They never realize the larger picture. Now, and I think what Howard Zinn has done and is doing in his writing of history is presenting the parts, all of the parts, so that we can perceive uh, what has been occluded. Much of what is called history is largely manufactured, constructed. It is um, a series of highly selective events. Uh, people's history is occluded, distorted, or completely omitted. And for years, the story of Columbus is a good example, and I grew up with that uh, in New York City. Here, you know, Columbus Day, this wonderful navigator, uh, this brave and fearless admiral who crossed the seas with the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. I mean, this was like catechism for us. <laughs> and, you know, but somewhere buried in the text was something about Taino and Arawak Indians. Oh. Well, well, who were they, and what were they doing there, and what happened to them? Well, if you read the conventional classic account by Samuel Eliot Morrison, uh, you find out that um, Columbus committed genocide, was responsible for a genocidal campaign in all the Caribbean islands that uh, he and his uh, men visited. And this, in Morrison's um, history, is, is, is like an anecdotal aside. Uh, the main thing is what a brave man he was and how much we owe him and the fearless navigator and, and that kind of stuff. So I think in Howard Zinn's brilliant first chapter of a people's history of the United States, um, all of a sudden the complete um, uh, picture of the elephant, if you will, is revealed. Uh, the true nature of uh, Columbus and his arrival as seen from those who were affected by it. So this is history from the grassroots up, not from the top down, which is the traditional conventional way of uh, presenting history. History as seen through the eyes of the Taino and uh, Arawak Indians. And how has culture changed? Culture has changed dramatically. In 1992, uh, and I think Howard Zinn has been very influential in the changing of our consciousness and in, in cultural perceptions. In 1992, in Denver, uh, there was going to be the 500th anniversary of Columbus's arrival. Well, on that day, there was such an enormous turnout of protesters. There were more protesters and demonstrators uh, in Denver than actual parade participants that... <laughs> that the uh, organizers of the parade uh, decided to cancel 
the event. Now this 20, 30 years ago would, be, would have been unthinkable, but it's precisely because of the work of Howard Zinn and the People's History of the United States and this uh, commitment to um, stripping off the, the layers of deceit and the webs of deception that have so enshrouded history and uh, the distortion of the past that such um, an evolution, a remarkable change uh, has occurred. Um, Howard's very good friend and comrade is Noam Chomsky. And in 1967, he wrote a book called The Responsibility of Intellectuals. And in that book, um, in that essay, uh, Chomsky wrote that it, it is the responsibility of intellectuals to speak the truth and expose lies. And I think Howard Zinn, through his work and through his practice, and this is what makes him a bit of a Sufi, because it's not just uh, preaching, but it's also his actual work, his uh, willingness to go to Everett, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston, and be in solidarity with uh, striking Salvadoran immigrant women who are trying to organize a union in, uh, and they're working under horrendous sweatshop conditions. So being out there with people in solidarity and kind of that IWW slogan of an injury to one uh, is an injury to all, also really epitomizes uh, Howard's wonderful blend of not just scholarship, but activism. So you have this uh, you know, intersection of uh, scholarship in service of the people rather than some you know obscure goal uh, and you know clouded in jargon and you know that appear in journals that only other academics can read but this is actually history you can use and there are many things to tell um, about Howard but um, something I'd like you to know is because um, I get a chance to travel around the country a lot and uh, meet with people, is the um, enormous amount of affection and care that uh, he generates. Um, wherever I go and, and you know, Howard's name comes up, people say, I love this man, or he changed my life, or when I read this book, it uh, you know, launched me on a new uh, career path. So that's, that's the other dimension of, of Howard, that, and it will soon become apparent to you. Okay, that's the introduction to Howard Zinn, short introduction by Asher Hugh, <clears throat> about the nature of history and how history is made up and constructed and different versions are selected because they have... A point of view, a certain point of view. And the point of view that Columbus, for example, was nothing more than an explorer, a wonderful mariner, <clears throat> you know, a guy who had a son, uh, Columbus. He was, he, Columbus brought capitalism to the new world, what we call the new world. This is what everyone ignores, kind of, that there was a race between all these countries. Well, the race was for money, was for something, something that you could trade and make money with. 
Okay, well, this is the B um, signing off. Let's see what I want to play here on the sign off. What do we do when everything is depressing? You look around you and your life is changing. Some of the changes are not so good. Some of the possibilities out there aren't so good. When labor takes it on the jaw, right? They did with Janus. We dance. This is the B signing off letting everyone know that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get if you don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work you're probably on the menu Mr. Janice never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor and when I say labor, I mean you. This is Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Come on down to Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street. Dance for joy. Dance for the coming conflict. And to our ultimate victory. Sylvia. Hello, Vita. Hello, Solina. Hello, everybody. You know who you are. We'll gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. 
From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Hey everybody, listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. brings you visual and auditory mind control. For the best graphic design, physical merchandise, and live music promotion, go to www.subliminalsf.com and check out their hilarious t-shirts and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the Bay Area. Subliminal SF creates amazing flyers, posters, and design for every need. So go now to www.subliminalsf.com and experience what this wonderful local business has to offer. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.Evan. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere fun. every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. (laughs) Well, hello, boys and girls. You know what a password is. That's a secret word that soldiers would use to get past the sentry and up to the front. Well, here's a password that gets you up to the front in all the right places. It's cannabis energy. It seems the faster you go, the more cannabis energy you need. So if you want to win, you have to have lots of cannabis energy. 
and the swellest way I know to get it is just by using Green Army Skincare. Boy, they're just crammed full of cannabis energy. There are more cannabis energy units in one lip balm tube than you use circling the base 10 times or when you ride your bike four miles across the city. And it's fast acting. Why, no sooner that you apply some balm to your mouth or pain areas, you practically feel the new strength in your muscles. And what's more, Green Army Skincare is a good, wholesome product. They're made with body nourishing cannabis and other natural ingredients. So go out there today and pick up some Green Army Skincare products from your local cannabis procurement center. Join thegreenarmy.com. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to invite you down to Bender's Barn Grill in the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco at 806 South Van Ness. Uh, we've got great food by our kitchen counter offer, burgers, tater tots, tachos, corn dogs, all sorts of good stuff like that. They're open from opening until 11 p.m. most days of the week, except Saturday. Every Saturday night, we've got live rock and roll, some of the best local bands in San Francisco, and touring acts as well. Come on down, 10 p.m., rock and roll, only night of the week. We have a $5 cover charge, always 5 bucks for live rock and roll. We're open from 4 p.m. until 2 a.m., Monday through Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 2 to 2. Come on down, have some drinks with us. We've got Whiskey Wednesday, Tequila Tuesday, and we've always got the Steve McQueen special. Shot of bullet bourbon and a can of California lager for 8 bucks. Come down and enjoy our patio. It's open uh, in the afternoon, not really in the evening, but a lot of good folks hanging out back there. Come on down, give us a shout. Drop by the bar, make some friends. Thanks, folks. Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District, San Francisco, California. With a happy hour every Monday through Friday until 7 p.m. Don't miss it. Go to Bender's Bar. Big supporter of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2018. Yeah, it goes down. Come smoke with your boy. Grinder. Spark is San Francisco's premier cannabis dispensary with a focus on serving and educating patients for seven years. Spark is dedicated to creating the best in-store experience with its extensive menu, friendly staff, and one of the few cannabis vape lounges in San Francisco. Spark welcomes you to visit its two great locations as a medical patient or for recreational adult use in 2018. Spark is located at 1256 Mission Street between 8th and 9th and at 473 Haight Street at Fillmore. Both locations are open until 10 p.m. every night. Spark staff looks forward to serving you. Rainbow Grocery, a worker-owned and operated food cooperative located at 1745 Folsom Street in the Mission District of San Francisco. Let's hear what locals have to say about Rainbow Grocery. Their bulk section is dope AF. I love their their variety of cheese and home decor items uh, and this of unique items that you can't find anywhere else. Their cheese section is insane. 
I love Rainbow Grocery because it's the number one grocery store to shop at when you're having a potluck and need to fulfill everyone's dietary needs. They don't have meat. Rainbow Grocery Cooperative, an amazing San Francisco staple since 19... Hey, people, you got the flat black plastic show on mutinyradio.fm.